welcome everybody to this month's Research and Focus podcast from the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the University of Liverpool. My name is Nick Jones, I'm part of the Research and Impact team at the Faculty and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr Sophie Jones, postdoctoral research associate in the Department of History. Today Sophie will be talking to us about her work exploring the social and cultural development of the North American colonies and how they shape political identities during the American Revolution plus more besides. So first of all, thank you very much for joining us, Sophie. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you. It's lovely to be invited. Thank you. It's our pleasure. And uh, just by way of a quick introduction, I wonder if you could give us a little rundown of your academic background and career so far and what brought you to the University of Liverpool. Yeah, so um, I'm local to Liverpool. I'm from the Wirral and I'm a first generation uh, university graduate. So I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, and I knew that Liverpool was my local uni and it was a good uni. So on that basis, I came here, um, did my undergraduate um, in history. And I decided that um, I wanted to go into marketing. So I'd arranged an internship at MS Bank in Chester. Um, and when I graduated, I did an MSc in consumer marketing, which I saw as um, sort of a vocational thing, helping me to get um, marketing roles. And had this vague idea of coming back at some point and doing a PhD, um, picking up an idea that I'd started at undergrad, but no one I knew did PhDs, so I didn't ever follow it through. And um, got to a point where I was on a career trajectory at the bank that I didn't really want to be on and it didn't really serve me. So um, I decided to hand in my notice on my safe, full-time paid permanent job. Um, came back and did an MA at Liverpool in 18th century worlds and then my PhD and it just sort of went from there. Nice, nice. So it's nice to have a bit of uh, experience outside academia maybe before coming into it. Tran, that's been helpful to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really helped me to mature. So I was a very different person um, when I was 21 and left um, university than um, or 22 than when I came back um, I was a lot more confident um, speaking to people and making um, sort of making contact with people so my job title was a department administrator but it was a lot more than that and um, I worked on the delivery of strategic projects um, I worked under a lot of pressure so um, and was uh, worked as part of a small team so um, learned some skills like um, handling sensitive data, handling lots of data, organisational skills, working to um, multiple deadlines, conflicting deadlines, um, working as part of a team, um, resilience, um, time management, but also things like building partnerships um, and working with senior management. So there wasn't time in that job to be nervous about doing that. You just have to get on and do it. And I think that's been really helpful in um, building relationships and building partnerships in, in my current role now. Excellent. Thank you so much. And coming back to your research interests and the yeah. reason we're here today, um, your work looks at the development of uh, the North American colonies uh, what time period does that cover exactly? Um, so we'll say the long 18th century. So my PhD covers 1688, which is the Glorious Revolution. 
um, to the end of the American Revolution, so about 1783. Um, however, each of the North American colonies has their own unique origins. So New York's initially founded as a Dutch colony. Um, Pennsylvania is founded as a Puritan colony. So I need to have an awareness of what happened in the, in the years before. Um, but realistically, from about 1690 to about 1783, 85. Okay, yeah, history doesn't really fit into it. It started here and finished there. Does yeah. it? It's, it's very, um, it slips and slides a little bit. Part of your interest covered the uh, American loyalists. These were people who uh, were named as such for remaining loyal to the British cause. Um, could you tell us a little about um, why they might have, have done so? What kind of reasons have you found for their loyalism back in those days? Yeah, so the main thing to remember is the 13 colonies that went on to become the United States. Um, at the time, they were part of Britain. And we don't see it that way because we're seeing it from um, where we are today, looking backwards. Um, but they were founded as um, provinces of Britain. So New York's a provincial town in the same way that Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester is. Um, so there's lots of different reasons why people remained loyal um, rather than joined the, the, the cause for independence. There's um, economic reasons. So there are merchants who had links with um, um, suppliers and, and traders in Britain. Um, it wasn't in their interests to, to cut ties and cut economic ties. Um, there are people who had a genuine attachment to Britain and the monarchy. Um, and this is a point that Brendan McConville makes really clearly in his work. Um, there are people who were essentially pushed into loyalism by their communities. Anyone who was a bit of an outsider um, could sort of be hauled before a committee and accused of being a loyalist. Um, a couple of um, people that often get groups that get forgotten about, black loyalists. Uh, so these are um, people who were either um, free or were enslaved but their um, masters were patriots the british offered them freedom in return for fighting um and also native american loyalists so um the war actually split the haudenosaunee people um depending on the relationships they had with colonial officials so if the relationship was good they tended to join the british if the relationship was poor um they joined join the american side but the, I think the Brexit campaign, without sort of going <laughs> too much into, into that, really brought it home for me that how divisive it was and how, um, you know, it, it, in some places it was community decisions. In some places it was very much an individual decision and everyone still had to live together and um, sort of get along under these very tense circumstances. Yes, that's one of the things that's kind of uh, reading up about your work and preparing for this little chat is is how... Uh, it's plus a change, uh, really, a little bit, isn't it, in, t in terms of we're talking about these people and the split amongst their society, and yet we live in, in such um, split societies for lots of different reasons, even today, and um, uh, but, but it just it just seems to be, you can, you can see these things echoing down through time a little bit, if you like. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, not that different. So, I mean, you talked about people having to... Um, rub along and still live together in the same communities there. So um, how were these people, the loyalists, seen and treated by the revolutionaries, both, I mean, maybe before, during and after the war? Very badly. 
Um, so the way you would be identified as a loyalist is um, take a sort of step back. The American Congress um, issued an Articles of Association, which was very simply a boycott against British and Irish imports. Um, if you signed, and then they established local committees to monitor adherence to that, that boycott. So if you were found to be breaking the boycott, you were very publicly outed in the newspaper and declared a loyalist. So people would um, sort of uh, snitch on their neighbours to these committees and say, oh, I heard this person toasting the king or this person's been trading. So in terms of how people were treated, they were treated really badly. They were um, intimidated, um, hauled before committees. Um, they were put in what were called the Tory prisons. Tories are a complicated word, but loyalists are sometimes called Tories. Um, it, by the by the um the independent side um acts of violence um things like tarring and feathering were i think quite common um so yeah, physical attacks on people and this continued after the war so one of the terms of the peace treaty and settlement was that americans were um, american loyalists were supposed to be allowed to go back to the united states to reclaim their their lost property um, and what happened in practice is um, they faced a lot of intimidation, again, uh, physical violence. Um, so lots of people were too scared to ever go back and um, their real estate, their property was was all lost. So really quite significant impacts on uh, the decisions that you made in those days. Then. Yeah, absolutely. And not just for you, for your for your families as well. Um, so, you know, once you didn't have the means to send your children abroad for an education that, that would have um, sort of a, a big impact down the line as well. And related to that then, um, did these differences and splits in society go on to have an effect on the um, American identity that we know today in terms of how they see themselves and how they behave? Um, yeah, absolutely. So when loyalists are remembered, they tend to be misremembered as being quite conservative, quite elitist. Um, but sort of sneaky and dastardly. Um, so it's the way they're depicted, and you can see this the way it comes through in um, sort of film and TV series. So even things like Hamilton, the way that George III is depicted as being quite um, feminine, overly feminized and untrustworthy. Um, Jason Isaacs plays a loyalist. <laughs> um, and he's in Slytherin, so that says a lot. <laughs> um, so, yes, they are. And I, I think that's in very stark contrast to the image we have of the Patriot, of being sort of a man's man with a sort of honest simplicity. And there's a whole load of stuff to unpack there about masculinity and, and things like that. Um, but it also has a big impact on Canadian identity because we think about... 70 to 80,000 loyalists left um, the United States after the revolution and about 30,000 of them um, resettled in Canada. So um, at that point, Britain had not long taken um, the, colon the French colonies from the French, sorry, the colonies in Canada from the French, from the French. So uh, lots of loyalists went just north of the border and resettled there, replicating the communities. 
and the descendants of loyalists still live in Canada today. Um, I've worked with the United Empire Loyalist Association of Canada, who uh, were kind enough to give me a scholarship. So I think it has a big impact on Canadian identity and, and how they see themselves um, in relation to, to, to Britain as well. Well, that's interesting that you talk there about Canadians who have, you know, like the Loyalist Society thing going on. Is there still any um, people in the United States who perhaps still choose to identify with the Loyalist kind of the Anglophiles or people who see it as not so much that we should never have split, but perhaps have a slightly more sympathetic attitude towards it? Not that I found. I wouldn't be surprised if in the sort of centuries since there's been movement back and um, movement across the border. Um but they certainly don't have an association that I'm aware of in the same way that Canada does. And they have sort of, it's it's very structured. It has local regional branches and then sort of an overriding institution. And I'm not aware of anything similar in America. So there might be, there might be individuals, um, but they're not organised in the same way. Right, okay. It's been a much more kind of uh, washing of the hands of the whole um, yeah. uh, British rule type thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you also talked about the kind of varying degrees of loyalism or what was interpreted as such uh, within the colonies. Have you got any examples of what that might have looked like and what people may or may not have been able to get away with, so to speak? Yeah, so um, my article, um, that I've, I've given a link to this in the blog, it's an article in the Journal of Early American History, talks about this in depth. Um, and my plan for the book is to give some examples through case studies. Um, but very broadly speaking, um, in some places, loyalism is seen as a set of actions that you take. So joining a regiment, fighting for the British, um, carrying arms, all that kind of stuff that I think we, the scholarship more traditionally thinks of being loyal. In certain places, loyal um, loyalism is seen as an attitude um, and it's a little bit trickier to define. So... What I talk about in that article, just to give some examples of the case studies, in Tryon, which is um, a border county um, right in the frontier, it's sort of, it's on the border with what's now Michigan. Um, there are extremely active, and active is a term used at the time, so extremely active loyalists who pretty much immediately um, join the forces upon the outbreak of fighting. Actually, they join it before there, but that's a different story. Um, in Albany, I've found um, a group of loyalists who try and sit the war out, um, try and hope it'll pass them by and just <laughs> happen around them. Um, and then eventually are sort of pushed into choosing a side either way and they can't quite give up um, that, that sort of sense of allegiance to Britain. Because um, giving that up is quite a radical thing to do. Um, and then in, in New York City, um, which is a very different space. It's an urban space. It's a lot more anglicised. It has a lot of the institutions that were, we would recognise in 18th century English towns as well. But in New York, I've found lots of people who don't really do anything at all. And what they do is they come behind the British lines, um, seek protection from the, from the armed forces, and then say, well, I went around telling all my friends to be loyal. Um, so that makes me deserving of compensation and a pension. So very different whether it's um, whether we define loyalism as attitudes or actual physical physical acts. 
So it's a bit of a spectrum then in terms of how involved you chose or perhaps ended up being. Very much, very much. And I think it is my well, my argument, and people can read the book when it's eventually out and, and disagree with me, but my argument is that it's very much shaped by the context that people were living in and the circumstances in which they had to make those decisions. Do you think, um, and I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be yes, do you think America is quite proud of the, the way it uh threw off those shackles of the, the British rule today, speaking to contemporary Americans. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I mean, even as recently as it was last March, I had a fellowship in Philadelphia and they have um, the Constitution Museum and they have um, the, a great museum to the American Revolution. They're both brilliant museums. But when I sort of got talking to staff there, it's very much a sense that I work on the losers. Uh, these are very much the losers of history. Um, and yeah, the, a real sense of 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 pride of um, sort of the small individual man overcoming the British monarch. Um, but then I do that. I find it bizarre. Sort of, <laughs> they're interested in the current monarchy. So that's people, I suppose. Yes, maybe they just want to be interested in us, but that's all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interested from a safe distance. Yeah. Probably best, as we're living here, we can understand that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so before this project, you were also working on a project that was exploring the contributions made by subscription libraries to social, cultural and political change, again, during the 18th century. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yep, so um, this project um, is a four-year project uh, funded by the AHRC, and I work as part of a team of researchers um, from across... Um, Britain, the United States and Australia and I work closely with our partner institutions again from um, the State Library of New South Wales um, through local institutions to across to America and I work closely with the libraries in New York, New Jersey and uh, Philadelphia and it's a big DH, uh, uh, a big digital humanities project and um, so subscription libraries are a particular type of library that are unique to the 18th century and they're actually something that were founded in North America and then spread back towards Britain which is quite unusual it's usually the other way around so that's definitely something to be proud of um, and the way they work is effectively um, individual sort of people in the local community club together commit to pay subscriptions and then choose books and form a library and it's very much led at the community level, so not by the church, not by one individual who's just um, endowed his books. Um, and this, um, the main output is a open access database, which is going to be released later this year, um, which allows for investigation and analysis at a scale that hasn't been possible before. And we've got information um, regarding the members, so the people who, who paid the subscriptions and were members at these libraries. We know what, what books they held. Um, and we also, for some of them, have borrowing records. So being able to see exactly who was borrowing which books and which books were the most popular. Um, and it's a big interdisciplinary project. It's been really exciting to work on and to work on um, such a diverse team as well with, with a really broad set of interests. So I hope to be able to share that when it's available. 
Absolutely, yes. I mean, can you give us a uh, little insight? What have been perhaps the most popular books that they lent? Cookery books, murder mysteries? What did people read in those days? Oh, um, so it's changing. It's it's very much live. So as we are working through um, borrowing records and updating them, the data is changing. But we're definitely finding a lot more novels than, uh, than we're expected. There is traditional sort of canon of thought that we think people were were reading in the 18th century um and what we're finding is in practice that wasn't quite true so some of the some of the big novels some of the big authors are coming through as you'd expect Shakespeare is very popular still um but also a lots of the novels it's it's not all the high high level enlightenment material that maybe we suspected <laughs> Yeah, people being people again, just um, <laughs> reading for pleasure and uh, yeah. as they should. Or people very nice. My favourite is when people order something really heavy, like chemist, like a chemistry book, and then um, a copy of Tom Jones and read those two together. Yeah, you can't just have one without the other, can you? Otherwise, it's just too much. No, yeah. <laughs> you need the light, the light thing for a bit of entertainment. So, leading off from that, you talk about these subscription libraries being set up at a community level, given. Yeah. The chronic underfunding of public services that we're seeing so much these days. Do you think there's ever going to be a return to community-led access to reading? I don't know. I mean, I can... It's not something I've thought about, and I probably should, but you see this happening more and more on a local basis, people sort of taking the initiative, whether it's... I've seen it with things like gardening and sort of cleaning up streets and doing community gardens. I wouldn't be surprised if it hasn't already happened somewhere or it's happening all i would say is i think that takes a certain level of privilege um to be able to do that in in current times but it also took a certain level of privilege at the time as well so even though admission prices varied significantly depending on um, sort of the decade we're looking at and the place we're looking at they weren't cheap um there were barriers to entry um so it's a certain section of society that we're looking at so potentially but i think my worry about that would be how open to all um it would be and keeping keeping books behind a paywall is is yeah it's a bit of a scary thought and hopefully it would be lovely to see a community library book um hopefully it really would be for the community yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that was where I was going in terms of, yeah. you know, perhaps communities could uh, replace what is being taken from them by community action. Not that that's how it should be, you know, but we look at things like, yeah. um, like tool libraries and things like that, is that you can go and borrow a drill yeah. for, um, you know, a certain piece of equipment to do your house up without having to go and buy it. So just the And even, even like when you see on holiday when there's the bookshelf where people, you know, if you go yeah. to an all inclusive and people leave their books on that sort of level, yeah. Hopefully. Yes, yes. I mean, you do kind of people will have like little kind of like telephone boxes, don't they, in villages where they have yeah. books and things going on. So um, yeah, just it's that kind of similar community spirit. Yeah, yeah. So going back to what we talked about at the top of the interview, where you talked about coming from you know, marketing and working in industry. In the blog, you use a very interesting term to describe your um, uh, career choice, which is uh, squiggly. Uh, I wonder what does that mean a squiggly career so I've um borrowed that term from um, amazing if and I've got the book somewhere on my shelf 
Um, but it's it's very much based. So I would definitely recommend checking out the Squiggly Careers book. I think it's about ten pound on Amazon. There's also a podcast as well, um, which is uh, free. So it's very much based on the idea that um, modern careers don't follow a clear trajectory, um, and we, we sort of go off at tangents and we loop round and we make sideways moves and diagonal moves. Um, but I really like the word and I, I couldn't think of a better one. So I think my career has definitely been squiggly. And I think it's I think it's great because it gives it helps you to gain lots of different skills and to bring different skills and different perspectives to a role. And I think the more people talk about having um, squiggly careers and career paths and not being on a straight trajectory, um, I think it makes all of this a lot more accessible to people and um i think for me it's it's it gives me a bit of a bit of hope and a bit of inspiration when i hear people talking about the the weird and wonderful paths they took to get to where they are it feels um it feels very honest and it's it's nice to see where you could go you know the, the possibilities are endless um it's just seeing someone t um paving the way and getting there first is nice to see Yes, yes, absolutely. I completely agree. It doesn't really matter the path you've taken because uh, everyone's on their own path through life, aren't they? So they're going to yeah. take a different route. And occasionally, just for a while, we might all be in the same place. Totally agree. But um, bringing you back to academia, you must get to, uh, as a researcher, you must get to see lots and lots of interesting things. But what's the most interesting thing that you've come across, the thing that has stopped you in your tracks as a practising researcher? That's a really good question. Um, so I've had lots of pinch me moments, usually to do with um, when I've given talks and lots of moments of how on earth did I get here? Um, and sort of those moments I think are really important to take stock. But I was sat in an archive once and the woman opposite me, as she was sort of leaf leafing through her material, kept doing lots of gasps and covering her mouth and, oh, my gosh. And I thought, I've never had anything that's sort of done that for me. Um, I found things and thought, oh, brilliant, this, this actually answered what I wanted it to do. Um, that's quite rare. But I think one of the things that sort of hit me is I work with compensation claims, and that sounds quite dry um it sounds quite impersonal but once you dig into them you know and, so, and some of them are a bit um it's just people sort of saying why they think they're they're entitled to to compensation but there's actually a lot of violence in those claims sort of hidden um there's lots of accounts of violence on women uh for instance there's lots of really daring things that people do that they just and put down on paper um there's lots about emotions there's lots about the experience of being a refugee in a foreign country where actually you think you know you think you think you fit in and then you get there and you're really homesick so I think for me um I realized after sort of working through a lot of these in a day it was quite a heavy feeling because there's so much emotion contained within these stories and, and that's something that I'd really like to do next and I'm hoping to apply for some funding for is to really dig into the history, um, the history of emotions and put something onto paper about homesickness and, um, and, and identity during this period. Because I think 
we sometimes forget that people in the past had emotions and feelings and um, I think it's important to tell that side as well. Yes, absolutely fascinating. Yet again, I think we forget that history is about people. Yes, it's about yeah. things that happened, but those things happened, you know, because of and to people, and they would have had emotional impacts on them. Yeah, what what was it? What did it feel like to have that happen to you or to live through? I think that's one of the things um, that really hit home when I worked when I've been working with um, the loyalists in Canada is remembering that this is you know someone's great 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 grandparent and um that it's part of it's part of their story and it's part of their identity so even though you know ethic when i do any ethics forms i don't have to because everyone's you know dead and in the past and i'm dead for a very long time but actually that legacy is still there and just sort of remembering to be sensitive to that is is um is really important yeah put ourselves into the position of the people who were experiencing that maybe so this is the question I have to ask because I'm from the Research and Impact team. So um, thinking about all your work and, you know, the impact it might go on to have in the, re- in the, in the real world, so to speak, yeah. what's the most significant change you'd like to see as a result of your research? So I've got two. Um, the first is that I would love to see a reinterpretation of loyalists. Um, yes, in the US, but mainly in the UK. So it... <laughs> They're a group that we don't learn about. They're a group that we don't really know anything about. Public perception. I'd be surprised if I said to anyone in on you know, sort of out and about, oh, I work on the loyalists, and they they wouldn't know who that was. There's even a loyalist memorial in Chester Cathedral. I've lived, I've lived down the road from Chester all my life. I had no sense of what that meant and what that even referred to. So yes, I'd like to see a reinterpretation of loyalists. Um but the other thing is this period that I look at um, and the relationship, the emotional and economic relationship between Britain and North America, I would argue is the very first stages of what we now call the special relationship. And somewhere between the 18th century and Thatcher and Reagan, that's been lost and that's been forgotten about. Um, and even more so, Liverpool is central to that. Liverpool has played such an important role as a port in exporting people, goods, ideas that help to sustain those relationships. And I'd love for people in Liverpool to have, um, and the the Liverpool city region more broadly, to have a a better understanding of how important this city is and how important this region is um, for forging some of those political relationships that we still live under today. So I have applied for... um, a research grant that will allow me to do that. So if your listeners could all cross their fingers for me, I'd be, um, I'd be thank you. It's very much appreciated. And um, hopefully I'll be able to do, do something with that in the future. Wonderful. We are all crossing our fingers super hard right now. Boys. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Dr. Sophie Jones, thank you so much for coming to join us. That's really, really interesting and lots of stuff that I haven't, I haven't really thought about before. So thank you so much for opening my eyes to, to that. Um, part of history. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to just talk about my research for 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 half an hour or so. Well, that's what we're here for—to create that safe space to talk about your work. So, thank you. It's been really, really good. Thank you so much again.
And thank you all for listening as well. Um, next week or next month, in fact, we will be joined by uh, Eduardo Coutinho, who's a senior lecturer in music psychology, and we'll be learning more about his work. So thank you for joining us and goodbye. <laughs>